the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, our scripture reading begins at verse 32. Mark chapter 14, verse 32, reading from the English Standard Version translation. And they, this is Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, My betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, enable us to understand what is happening during this time on that very night that Jesus was betrayed and shortly before he is arrested and tried, condemned to death. Help us to understand what is taking place, Father, here in this Garden of Gethsemane. Open up our minds to understand what our Savior endured and experienced, what the disciples themselves experienced, that we might find here, Father, deeper insight, even into the mystery of our own salvation, to know our Savior better. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want us to think about this passage here and ask ourselves, how are we to think about this time that was taking place in the life of Jesus and in the lives of his disciples? How to think about this. That is to say, how to understand this. How to see what God was doing here in Christ and even in the lives of his disciples. I want us to appreciate that right here is a very significant part of the transition that's been taking place when Jesus finished the Passover meal and then established what we call the Lord's Supper, when he inaugurated the new covenant and then begins really the the last 18 hours or so of his earthly life and earthly existence. 
what is taking place is a transition from what has been the ministry of Christ as the second Adam to the final phase of the ministry of Christ as the second Adam. Up until now, Jesus has been living out his life as, as the one that God has sent into this world who's going to live a life of full and complete obedience to God, the very thing which the first Adam failed to do. Uh, Jesus has been living a sinless life. He has been living his life under the law. There was never a stricter moral code than what God had given to Israel. So Jesus is living his sinless life in the face of the most demanding kind of law code that has ever existed. He's been living this life in the face of satanic temptations and human adversaries. He's been teaching the multitudes. He's been focusing particular training upon the disciples. He's been preaching the advent of the kingdom of God. He's been healing the sick. He's been even raising the dead. And all of this was to authenticate and to demonstrate in his life and ministry that he was truly the Messiah of Israel, that he was truly the Christ who has come into this world, that he was truly the Son of God. His perfect life, establishing all the credentials necessary for him to fully and completely and truly be the sinless Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now here in Gethsemane, the mission changes. It's all one mission, but the direction and focal point now is significantly different. Because this is the final phase of what is going on in the life and ministry of Christ. Because now begins the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had predicted so long ago. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, let me remind you of those words concerning Christ preached eight centuries before he came into this world. He, referring to Jesus, the Messiah to come, he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes or by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. For he was cut off in the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. Now, the language here describes for us the suffering of Christ. But note, and this is so emphatically significant and important, it is not just the physical suffering of Jesus that Isaiah the prophet is describing, but it is, in fact, what we would call the emotional and mental 
and psychological distress that Jesus is enduring. And the enduring of that begins in Gethsemane. So how do we think about this time? Well, our answer should be essentially this. When we read this passage, we see in the agony which Jesus experienced in Gethsemane, we see Jesus as the suffering servant. We see him as the second Adam who is now taking upon himself the burden and the weight of the sins of the world, the sins of all his sheep, the sins of his bride, the sins of his church in order to accomplish that great work which only the Son of God could do. So when we look at this passage, the three ideas that come together to demonstrate this would be first and foremost the depiction of the weight of sin. The instrumentality of the role of prayer in the life of Jesus. And then the contrast with the frailty and failures of the disciples who were there with him. The great weight of sin. The great prayer that Jesus prays. And then the disciples sleeping when they should have been watching and praying. And I want us to think about the, the weight of sin to begin with. Because what we read here is the agonizing emotions that grip Jesus in, in this experience of what he's going through. And in that agonizing distress that Jesus is going through, we see something of how great the burden of sin is that Jesus begins to bear. I want us to consider the language. It is quite graphic. In verse 33, the ESV translates it as greatly distressed and troubled, uh, which the original Greek would refer back to words such as being agitated, being alarmed, being even amazed by the experience of what one is going through. And then we read also that he's in, in this feeling, he's filled with anxiety, which is another way of translating this, this term, this idea. Verse 34, Jesus says, And my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That sorrow there is the, the, the depth of being grieved so deeply. It's the sadness that that kind of grief can bear upon the human soul. Luke's Gospel reflecting upon this passage. And we should remember that the Apostle Paul refers to Luke as that dear and glorious physician. Because that was his, his trade as he became a disciple and follower of Jesus, the writer of the Gospel of Luke. His perception of what Jesus experienced is, is recorded in chapter 22 of Luke, verse 44. And he describes Jesus as being in agony. Sweat becoming like great drops of blood. Now what this tells us, Jesus is going through psychologically, emotionally, mentally, a state of emotions that, 
that are nothing less than agonizing, sorrowing, troubling, distressing, uh, that which is evoking intense mental distress even. The question is, or the observation is, we see Jesus here like we have never seen Him before. Never in, in any of the multitude of episodes where we've seen Jesus encountering all sorts of challenging things in His ministry from, from, from the demons who call out against Him in the synagogue to, to the adversaries who, who try to who trap Him in their, their, their machinations against Him. We never see Jesus in anything other than a great deal of complete self-possession and control. Even when He's upset with His disciples, and the word there can be translated greatly irritated, Jesus never, ever loses control. He is always the most perfectly integrated human being ever. So that all of His emotions are, are fully contained within a godliness toward His Father. If He was irritated, it was righteous irritation. If He was merciful, it was godly mercy. If He was opposing His adversaries, it was a godly response. But now Jesus is undergoing something else that we've never seen before. His human nature is being tested and tried as never before in terms of what He was experiencing. And then the question is, what then, what possibly could be the reason why this is happening to Jesus? Now some, reading through this, have wrongly assumed, well, who wouldn't go through this kind of experience if you knew that uh, 12 hours from now you would begin to be crucified? And, and look, the, the, the little merit that that suggestion has is grounded in the fact that every Jewish male understood that the worst thing that could happen to you ever was to so contradict the Roman law that you would be arrested and tried and crucified. The, the typical normal Jewish male had seen, and, and Jewish women too, and children, they had seen hundreds of human beings crucified by the Romans in that slow and torturous manner in which this kind of death would take place. Nailed to a cross, out in the sun, hours and hours, sometimes bodies there upon the cross, day, day and a half, two days, sometimes three days before expiration would take place. So, the most brutal, painful way for someone to die. But that interpretation hardly matches what Scripture declares about Christ prophetically. Because if Jesus was afraid of the cross, if, if what He was going through was an, 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 an index of His fears of how great the suffering was going to be, it would be Jesus being afraid and fearful and grieving and sorrowing and agitated for Himself. But that's not what Isaiah said. Isaiah has said that when the suffering servant comes, when the Redeemer suffers, when he experiences sorrow and grief, it is for us. 
everything that Jesus experienced, his griefs, sorrow, is related to and connected to our iniquities and our transgressions. Jesus has none of those to bear, so Jesus has no sorrow nor grief over his own sins. All that he's experiencing now is anticipation of what he's doing for his people. That is why we have to look to the mission of Christ as the Lamb of God to understand what Jesus is going through. The meaning of this agony that he's experiencing in Gethsemane is completely connected, connected to the weight and the burden of sin. Back to Isaiah again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's why Jesus was the man of sorrows. He was bearing our sin. The Apostle Paul brings in another perspective along the same concern, the same line of things, but it opens up even a deeper understanding of what Jesus was now experiencing as the Lamb of God preparing to die. Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul says about Christ, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The Apostle Paul is here describing the meaning of the death that Jesus is going to die upon the cross. Jesus becomes a curse for sinful human beings. In their place, Now, what we need to appreciate that the Old Testament, as a covenantal document, has lots to say about blessings and curses. It's it's part of the whoop and woof of the way Old Testament saints and these New Testament saints would have fought. They understood that the, the, the worst thing that could ever happen to any human being were to be under the curse of God. Because the curse is the strongest way of expressing condemnation. The word we associate in terms of curse and condemnation is the word damnation. Eternal perdition that which places someone completely at the focal point of the infinite wrath of God. That's what Paul says Jesus did. Jesus is experiencing the weight that only continues to grow as he goes to the cross 
of the curse of God upon him. Another thing that Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what that means is that God is God regards Jesus and treats Jesus as sin. God regards Jesus who knew no sin as if he had all sin. As if all the burden that belongs to us is now laid upon Jesus. And God looks at him that way. God regards Jesus. God makes his own son that object of his wrath and curse that's due unto sin. Now the experience then of Gethsemane that, that Jesus is going through then is a powerful, powerful testimony to us that Jesus bore the burden and weight of our sin. He did so not just simply in his body that's crucified upon the cross, but he does so in his own human soul. Sometimes in our Bible believing evangelical circles, we think about what Jesus did for us and we think, yeah, he physically died on the cross for us. God killed him so that we could be saved. That's true. But that's like saying the whole study of arithmetic can be simply this. One plus one is two. There is so much more for us to understand. The suffering of Jesus is not just physical. The suffering of Jesus is psychological and mental and emotional. He suffers in the completeness of his human nature. Because you have sinned in the totality of your human nature. You have sinned by the deeds which you have done. You have sinned by your heart attitudes toward the things of life. You have sinned in the emotional responses that you've had to things in which you should not have responded that way emotionally. You have sinned even sometimes in your mental distresses because you have not trusted the one you should have trusted that relied totally upon your... In every way that we are as human beings, we have been broken and we are fallen and we have sinned. Jesus is experiencing the fullness of the weight of sin in his body and in his soul. And we see it here in Gethsemane. And how is that important for us? Let me read this to you. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God.
when we understand what is happening in Gethsemane all the way through the cross, we are viewing and estimating the nature of our sin and guilt through the agony and the pain and the distress and the trouble and the suffering that Jesus endures. It is something our minds need to rehearse and our hearts ought to meditate on. We measure our guilt, the guilt of our sin, by the suffering of our Savior. We go on then to see how Jesus is responding to what he's going through, and this is the role of prayer. The example of Jesus shows us that there is a vital and indispensable role of prayer in his great life, in the greatest hour of his trial and need, And the fact that Jesus prays at this time teaches us that prayer is, in fact, the most vital and important thing we can ever, ever do in the troubling times of our lives. So we read in verse 35, going a little further, farther, meaning beyond where Peter and James and John happened to be, he fell on the ground and prayed. That's extreme prayer. Normally, Jews would pray standing or kneeling, but this demonstrates the most extreme condition of prayer. Mark tells us that Jesus also had three distinct seasons of prayer in the story here, of which the first we know lasts for at least an hour because Jesus comes back and says to Peter in verse 37, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? So here's what we need to see. In his deepest distress, Jesus turned to his heavenly Father. Now, I want us to note something that might help us here. All throughout Jesus' life, he prayed. We, we know that from the testimonies within the Gospels. We know that Jesus had an unbroken fellowship with his heavenly Father. There was no sin that ever broke the relationship, fractured, impinged upon the relationship between Jesus and His Heavenly Father. So, so Jesus always prayed freely, spontaneously. Jesus never felt what Adam and Eve felt immediately after eating the forbidden fruit. Never any sense of the nakedness and shame of breaking God's law. Jesus never felt the shame of doing evil and sin. Jesus never felt the guilt and the alienation from God that comes from sin. Now, you and I know what stifles prayer in us is when we know we have done wrong in the eyes of God. Feelings of guilt under the weight of sin drives us from God because sin breaks fellowship with our Heavenly Father. We see this as the testimony of Scripture, going back to Psalm 32, one of David's uh, confession psalms and prayers. Look to how David felt the weight of sin upon him. He said, When I kept silent about my sin, 
my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of summer. Now, that's a poetic description of the alienation of guilt that comes when we sin. If we have any conscience at all, when we sin, we feel the guilt and alienation. We feel driven away from God. That those feelings drive us away from God. You and I know that when we've sinned and we know that we've sinned, the last one we want to look at in His face is God. We don't want to because we feel shame. When we need God's help the most, our reaction is most often to turn away from Him. Adam and Eve did exactly that. Now Jesus, in the garden, is having the psychological and emotional weight of sin pressing upon Him. The temptation was to turn away from God. Because that's the human response when we feel the weight of sin. But here is the victory of Christ. He does not turn away. He turns to His heavenly Father. You and I need to see what Jesus did. And you and I need to know if when Jesus began to bear the weight of all of our sin, which would have the temptation to feel shame, the temptation to turn away, the temptation to psychologically react like human nature reacts in the face of God when we feel that we have done wrong, that temptation coming to Jesus was overcome. And he turns to his heavenly Father for all help at this time. The writer to Hebrews tells us this. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Your time of greatest need is when you have sinned. You have never had any greater need than when you have violated the holy law of God and know that you are sinful before Him. That is your greatest time of need and that is the time in which your Heavenly Father wants you to come into His presence. Not to receive your comeuppance. Not to receive some kind of punishment or chastisement. He wants you to come because, as the writer says, so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. There's something else we need to see here about the prayers of Jesus. 
We can state it this way. What we seek in prayer might be best for us, but not best for all. What we seek in prayer might, at that moment, in that situation, in that condition, be best for us, but not best for all. Look at what Jesus prays in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The agony that Jesus was experiencing was such that Jesus specifically asked that this cup of suffering might be removed from him. In the urgency of the moment of the great suffering in his soul, this seems the best thing to pray for, or Jesus would not have said this. For that moment and for that time, that seemed to be the most urgent thing that his heart and soul and mind could express. It, it, it seemed best for him. In his three sessions of prayer, Jesus prays this. God, remove this cup from me. But we know it will not be so. We know the cup of suffering will not be removed from Jesus, God's beloved Son. And so we have this deep, deep lesson about prayer. What we seek might seem best for us, but in the great wisdom and plan of God, it may not be, it is not necessarily truly best for all. Jesus Himself knew this truth. The story in John chapter 11 illustrates this so powerfully. It's the story where Jesus and His disciples receive word from Mary and Martha that Jesus' dear friend Lazarus is so sick he's dying. And they ask for Jesus to come quickly. And Jesus instead remains where He is for several days. And when He finally goes with His disciples to Judea, to the town of Bethany, where Mary and Martha live, Lazarus has died. You see, Jesus didn't answer their prayer. He's been dead for four days by the time He gets there. In their hearts, as they sent word toward Jesus, in their hearts they wanted what they believed was best for Lazarus, best for them at that time, at that moment. They thought Jesus coming to heal their brother was that which was best for them. But what would have been best for them would not have been best for all. Because when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, He demonstrates for all the rest of human history in the Gospel testimony that He is the resurrection and the life. And many of the Jews, the passage tells us, many of those Jews who came there to grieve with Mary and Martha, who never would have come if Lazarus had been healed. There would have been no funeral. There would have been no session of uh, days of mourning. 
They came. They heard. They saw what Jesus did. And they believed. They are in heaven for all eternity with Christ because Jesus did not answer Mary and Martha's prayer for what seemed best for them. But instead, He did what was best for all. We have to learn from this. Like Jesus, we may pray what seems best for us, but God does not always answer those specific requests because what we ask for isn't necessarily in the wisdom and love and care of God truly best for us and best for all. And then thirdly, a principle we also see in Jesus here. It's the last part of Jesus' prayer in verse 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, not my will, but thy will be done. Here we learn that as deeply as we may desire something from God, as deeply as we may feel that it's right and that it's best, we must still pray in full submission to the will of God. Jesus does not get the answer he prays for the cup to pass. But he, gives the answer, he gets the answer which is best for God's overall great plan. You and I have salvation because ultimately Jesus submitted his request to the will of God. Christ in his great wisdom could understand what he was suffering even then and the cup he was experiencing and how difficult and awful it was for him to go through that. And he asked, all things are possible for you, but let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. And there we find the perfection of humanity in trusting our Heavenly Father. This is the highest point of Jesus' obedience. Everything from this point on is full and complete submission, knowing full well what's going to happen, knowing the cup does not pass from Him, knowing what He's going to go through for the next hours through the night and then through the next day. Jesus has been able to say in full knowledge of what is going to take place, not my will, but Your will be done. And there we see that in terms of our lives before God, how we need to understand, come to that point of understanding that so like this, we also need to pray. Not my will, thy will be done. The last thing briefly, the frailty of the disciples. Jesus invited human help. Peter, James, and John, pray and watch. First of all, for themselves, so that they wouldn't fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But Jesus also coveted their prayers for him. He wanted those to be faithful disciples who in his great hour of need would find his that he loved the most supporting him. They failed completely, totally, completely. 
do you understand that of all the Christians who've ever lived over the last 2,000 years, none have failed Jesus any more deeply than the disciples do from this point and through the cross. Did Jesus still love them? Did Jesus still care for them? Did his affection waver? Did his love for them diminish because of their disobedience and frailty and failings? Did did Jesus feel some kind of contempt for Peter who boasted so strongly that others may fall away, but I will never fall away? No. No. The frailty of the disciples magnifies the grace and love of Jesus. He agonized for us. He submitted himself to the will of the Father for us. And in our greatest faithlessness toward Jesus, he remains faithful still. It's all of grace. Amen. Father, keep reminding us through your great word of a great Savior, your Son, and of great gospel grace that takes us faithless, broken, sinful human beings, unites us to your Son, and brings us into everlasting life. Oh, Lord, keep doing this work in those who don't know you. Oh, Holy Spirit, draw people to yourself, to your Son. And then for us who have been blessed by your grace and life in Christ, keep us living by this grace. Draw us closer to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.